Shalom and welcome to The Straw Hat, hosted by Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. We are the official podcast of Anshay Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. Thank you uh, for listening and thank you to Jill Bronald for coming in to record this morning. Uh, for many years, I've told many people that one of the great benefits of living in Lakeview is that you get to schmooze with Joel Akidish and get uh, his uh, behind-the-scenes updates on what's happening in Israel and what's happening uh, in the world of diplomacy. And this past Shabbat, uh, Joel shared some of his insights and his perspective on the ongoing uh, turmoil and protests in Israel, and he shared that with us on Shabbat, and it was incredibly clear and insightful and um, uh, not necessarily optimistic, but, but clear-eyed and, 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 and really in sobering. Uh, and there was a sense uh, from those of us who were there that, you know, we really want, wish we could have recorded this and, and shared with others. And Joel was really gracious enough to come in uh, to record an update. And actually, a lot's happened between recording now on, uh, on a Tuesday morning and a lot's happened since even just since Shabbat. So he's going to give us uh, a recap um, and sort of similar to the perspective he shared on Shabbat, but also with an update of what's happened uh, since Shabbat. I just want to say one brief word uh, before he begins, and that is um, <clears throat> we find ourselves now recording this just a few days before Pesach, and I um, was uh, recently came across an idea shared by, by a friend and colleague, uh, Rabbi uh, Dr. Yehuda Mursky, uh, who uh, is a scholar of, of modern Israel and, uh, and teaches at Brandeis University, but he lives much of his time in Israel, and he shared that the character of the Eni Odei Elishol, the child who doesn't know how to ask uh, at the Seder, is uh, often portrayed as a little like a, a young child, an infant, someone really simple and innocent. But when you think a little bit deeper, that character of the Shenu Daily Shol, the one who doesn't know how to ask, is is somewhat of a terrifying notion that there is a question that you need to be grappling with of existential importance, a question of life and death, and you don't even know what the question is. <laughs> the examples that Yudha uh, Mirsky gave were uh, Americans on September 10th, 2001, right? There were some really important issues we had to think about and questions we had to be asking. We didn't know what the question was. Or more recently, think about December 2019, <laughs> January 2020. COVID was brewing uh, in China. It had reached our shores, shores already. There were major major questions we had to uh, to grapple with, and we did not know uh, what those uh, questions were. And so uh, in this moment as well, the Enosh Daily Show, one of the questions we need to be asking, maybe even questions that we uh, don't know about, right? The, the questions we certainly know about that we need to be asking, but uh, maybe there are other questions also, really significant, significant life and death uh, importance that we don't even uh, even know about. So with that, with that as an introduction, I want to turn to, uh, to Joel, and, and please just share with us... Um, uh, what's going on, and uh, and maybe some ideas about what what to, um, what to look for in the future. Sure, and, uh, Rabbi, it's a pleasure to be here, um, and thanks for having me. Um, you know, the the title of the session we did on Shabbat was judicial reform or identity crisis. I think that's you know to the your vote you just shared. That's the question. What is the question? What is actually happening? How did we get to a point where yesterday? Uh, for the first time in Israel's existence, um, it happened in the British Mandate, that the Histadrut, the trade union movement, and the, the business sector, uh, private sector, joined together to shut down the economy. That all flights from Ben-Gurion were closed. That all the ports to Israel were closed. That all the universities were closed. That all the schools were closed. That the army, were, that the night before, 600,000 Israelis at 11.30 at night took to the streets from the northern tip of the country to the southern edge, 
all to demand a stop. What, what in God's name happened and what's been driving this? And so I, I think to understand, firstly, is that this, is, this has been very painful for many people. You know, I joke, like, uh, for those of you who come to Ansha Shalom on, on Shabbat, you'll know that at the back of the shul, you'll often find me chatting and our gabai totally fairly telling me to stop talking. And it's been worse over the past three months because that's also where many of our Israelis sit. And I'd come in and we'd look at each other and we'd say, it got worse. And every week we'd look at each other like it got worse and it got worse. And what, what's, what's been getting worse? How, how have we got here? And so I think a good place to start is to firstly understand how is Israel set up as a society? You know, in the American system, we have a separation of our judiciary, our legislature, and our executive. And in Israel, the, the way that their governance works is different. Um, Israel is based off the British system. It's one of three countries that doesn't have a written constitution. Um, and what you really have is a superpowered executive which is drawn from the legislature. So, you know, whoever gets a majority in the Knesset becomes the government. Uh, the government is elected through a proportional representation list um, of uh, no constituencies, and all power is vested in the Knesset. So, for example, the Knesset can fire, you know, the, the, police, can, the police minister for the national government can fire the police superintendent for Tel Aviv, right? Like in Chicago, you know, our Homeland Security Secretary in Washington can't, fire our police captain here in Chicago, but in Israel they can because it's, it's a unitary authority and centralized. And so the only real check and balance that exists on this superpowered executive is the judiciary, which in turn is superpowered. It has a crazy amount of power. Uh, the legal advisors for each ministry can tell um, their ministers what they can and can't do. The AG, the Attorney General, is really the judicial system's representative in government, and they can, you know, say what is and isn't legal and can choose to defend or not defend the government in front of the Supreme Court. The judicial system itself and the lawyers' community have representation on the Judicial Selection Committee at the moment. Um, and uh, anyone has standing. Uh, the, the justice system can get involved on matters of policy, on matters of ministerial appointment, um, really basically every part of governance. And that acts as a check and balance on a majoritarian system. Now, um, reasonable people can, can agree that it's pretty crazy to have such a powerful judiciary. Uh, and reasonable people could agree that it's also pretty crazy to have such a powerful executive. So into this amalgamation, we have this, this election that happened 12 weeks ago, which was the fifth election in like three years, four years, where after the collapse of the previous government, after a year, Prime Minister Netanyahu finally returns to office uh, with a, an ideological a consistent right-wing bloc that is made up of the ultra-Orthodox, both the Sephardi and Ashkenazi, and the religious Zionist right, pretty far right, including former members of, you know, prescribed terrorist groups from Itamar Ben-Gvir, from, uh, from Jewish Power, and Bezal Smotrich, who is also, was always on the right of the religious Zionist spectrum. And what's interesting is that this is Bibi's fourth go-around as prime minister, and in his previous rounds, Judicial reform was nothing that really bothered him. This wasn't something that he cared about or he used to talk about himself as the defender of the court. And so suddenly, why did judicial reform become this big issue? Because if you listen to Prime Minister Netanyahu, when he swore in his government, he said the two issues this government is focused on is stopping Iran getting a nuclear weapon and expanding the Abraham Accords to include Saudi Arabia. Okay. 
And yet, when you read the coalition agreements, the one issue that had primacy was that all members of the coalition had to agree to judicial reform. So what is this reform and who's driving it? So there are really four different entities within the government for their own reasons that have their own issues with the judiciary. So let's start off with the intellectual part of the uh, intellectual part of Likud, uh, really led by the Justice Minister Yariv Levin, that really was taking their cues from a think tank in Israel called the Kohelet Forum, uh, which is actually totally funded by U.S. Uh, billionaires, uh, the Claus Foundation, um, uh, who fund many things, by the way, including the Hartman Institute and others. Uh, but they they really put a focus on judicial reform, and they have been perturbed. Uh, by this, what they see as a superpowered judiciary, and that you, you know, how can you have a permanent minority? Because when you look at the makeup of the ju- judicial system, many of the justices come from a secular Ashkenazi community, and the assumption is that they're all left wing. And how could you have this permanent minority that's self perpetuating, that's preventing the majority from moving forward? And intellectually, that's not how the state should be, and they've been pushing for some level of judicial reform. Um, but actually, what brought the head of the Kohelet Forum, uh, Professor Koppelman, Koppel, into this debate was the same thing that has motivated the religious Zionist part of the coalition into the debate, which was the 2005 disengagement. So in 2005, the Israeli government made the decision to evacuate Gaza and uh, four settlements in the north part of um, Samaria, of the West Bank. And uh, the settler community and the religious right very much felt like the Supreme Court didn't stand up for their rights. They didn't stand up for their property rights. They didn't stand up for their rights to protest at the time. And, you know, the reverberations during the Ormuk government afterwards and what happened in Arnona and other things, that they really felt like these protests where the government was extremely heavy-handed with them, that no one stood up for their rights. No one, and, and as a result, it was clear that this principle of rights and equality for the court was not for them. And the head of Kohelet said this is actually what mobilized him. He's a computer science professor. He's actually not a lawyer. And this is what motivated him to get involved in this space. And that's also what's motivated Bitsala Smotrich and Itmar Ben-Gvir to also want to neuter the court. Uh, not only that, but they want to make sure that they can do whatever they want in the West Bank. That if the government makes a decision to appropriate land, it's the government's decision and the court should butt out. It's, it's about national security, it's about sovereignty, it's about Jewish settlement. It's nothing to do with the court, and the court really shouldn't have a say there. Um, so that's what's motivating the, the intellectual part of the, the religious Zionist community. And then you have the ultra-Orthodox, who have their own problems. So if we look at Shas, the Sephardic part, they want Aryeh Derry, their leader, to be a minister. Now, Aryeh Derry has been convicted twice of public corruption and other issues once he was in jail. And the second time, last time, he, he gave a plea deal. And in his plea deal, he said he'd quit politics. And last Knesset, he quit. Um, and now he's been re-elected and he wants to be a minister. And the court said no. They said, you signed a plea deal. And so the Knesset actually already passed what was called Derry Law 1 to say he can come in. And the court invalidated it. And they invalidated it not just off this concept of reasonableness, which is one of the issues that the judicial reform wants to get rid of, but also of this concept called estoppel, which is this legal concept to say, you promised that you weren't going to do this. You can't revoke on this. Um, And so they have an interest of saying, look, if our voters want Rabbi Derry to be a minister. He should be a minister and the court shouldn't have a say. The people have spoken. Um, and that's one of the reasons that for them, one of the most important parts of the judicial reform, and we'll go through what it is, is the override clause. That even if the court with conservative people say no, the Knesset should override them. They should say, well, we say yes. And that should be that.
And then the last group is you've got the uh, Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox, uh, UTJ and others. Um, there's really a worldview that says that a secular court really shouldn't have any say over what they do. But it was really the issue of conscription and the need to actually pass a conscription law because the court said that their exemptions from the draft was really breaking the principle of equality. That they're like, look, we can't live in this reality and this is absurd. So we're also on board for neutering the court. So you've got this amalgamation of groups all pushing. And so what is the judicial reform? So the way it started was Simcha Rothman, who is, comes from Bitsar Smotrich's party, is very much in line with Kohelet, decides to put down you know, a mix of his and Levin's policies that really attack the court on multiple different places. You know, one is um, specifically on uh, judicial selection. They want to make sure that the government gets to select the, court, the, judicial, the judges at the moment. Uh, you need to have seven of nine of a committee of which uh, three members of the court sit. So though they can't get whoever they want, they functionally have a blocking veto. So they can actually block who they want. So they wanted to change it so that the coalition can appoint whoever they want. Um, they want to get rid of um, judicial review for uh, laws that they claim are basic laws. I uh, say so there's no need to create a special threshold to what a basic law is. So a basic law makes up Israel's semi-constitutional framework. So any law could be considered a basic law and be exempt from judicial review. They want to have a override that even if the court disallows something with 61, a bare majority of the Knesset, you could overturn what the court says. Um, the court wouldn't be able to rule against any basic law by any other basic law. So what that means is if the government passed something and says it's a basic law, then you can't appeal to other basic laws such as freedom of equality, you know, freedom of speech, other things uh, that it just wouldn't be allowed to have that. They want to get rid of the reasonableness clause, which is what the court has used to say if they think that a decision is capricious or doesn't have any sense of policy or is really about an individual benefit. They want to strip that ability for that to be something that the judges can rule on. They want to strip the ability of legal advisors in the government to have any say, uh, A, to be independent. They want it to be government appointed. Uh, and B, that they don't have an ability to block policy if it's illegal. And lastly, they want to divide the role of the attorney general so that it goes into three hats and basically neuters them to be a representative of the court. So truly, across the board, hardcore push. And the general thinking as it starts was like, okay, they're anchoring hard, but this isn't going to happen. And yet, day by day, week by week, it starts moving through the, the Constitution Committee at the, the Knesset. And despite that people are coming in to sort of say what the problems of this could be, they're all overruled and this continues, this moss gathers steam. This package of reforms, there's, there's really no limit to what a government of 61 could do. Yes. To deprive any minority of 59 of their basic rights. And it's not just theoretical. So the challenge is that while this is going on, the Knesset start, you know, the government ministers and the coalition MKs start putting in private member bills about things they want to do. One private member bill comes from Shas to imprison any woman who's immodestly dressed at the Kotel for six years. Another comes to extend the length of the government from four years to five years. Another says they should replace the Central Elections Committee with a government appointee rather than a judicial appointee. Another says that functionally all Arabs should be banned from standing for election unless they swear allegiance to a Jewish democratic state. Uh, and, you know, you have the Khametz law, which has been very unpopular uh, amongst some people, which would ban Khametz, you know, can a guard actually rummage through your belongings before you go into a hospital to see if you have Khametz or maybe even Kitniot, it's unclear. <laughs> um, 
But so there's been a whole series of, you know, there's a law that says that politicians could accept unlimited donations um, for their legal problems, which really just inspires potential corruption. So just a huge amount of, of policy formatting laws and everything else that the judicial reforms would functionally take away this judicial check and balance on the executive, but doesn't change the executive's power. It's not like we're rebalancing the situation. And and what's been very interesting before we get into what's driving the protest movements um, has been even supporters, right-wing supporters of Kohelet, Kohelet themselves and people like Ambassador David Freeman, um, when when asked, and there's been reporting on this, they sat with Simcha Rothman and said, look, we agree with you on judicial selection. It's crazy. The government should be able to pick. But why do you need an override rule? Why do you need to have 61, can, even if you've got your conservative judges? Why? And Simcha Rothman said, look, we need to move now. We have stuff we need to do. We can't have the coalition collapse. We need Derry to be a minister. We need to be able to do what we need. And I'm not waiting. And when asked, well, how are you going to defend rights? Him and Smotwich stared into the camera and said, trust us. And, and and I think that the reality is that trust, especially from people who are proud, Bitsal Smotrich is a proud homophobe, it's not my words, it's his, um, calls the Pride Parade a march of the beasts, has said that he doesn't want his wife uh, uh, to be next to Arab women when they give birth, um, lots of different things, um, which are very difficult to hear. To say trust us, we'll guarantee your rights, I mean, that's very difficult. By the way, this is also Likud ministers. The communication minister yesterday or the day before, you know, went and said, we'll guarantee rights. And by the way, LGBTQ is, is, is terrible behavior and everything else. And so trust is not a constitutional compact. And so people are worried. Okay, so if that's going on, so that's worrisome. But it, in our country, when things go on the Supreme Court, it doesn't bring out 12 to 15 million people. Like, what what has inspired the fact that you've got over, you know, three, apparently 19% of Israel has participated in demonstrations in the past 12 weeks? So what's driving that? Is it just judicial reform or is it something else? I think, Rabbi, to your point, it's these other private member bills that are demonstrating that what's going on is not actually just a constitutional conversation. But what's going on is really an, identi- an identity conflict. And, and for that, I actually want to just read uh, a passage that I shared in Shul that comes from Yehuda Yifrach, who is the head league of the legal desk at the Conservative. It's a right-wing newspaper, Makar Rishon. And he wrote this a few weeks ago, but it's even more true now. And he says, look, the good news is it's possible to resolve the constitutional crisis. The gaps between the sides are resolvable. The less good news is that to resolve the constitutional crisis, we've got to heal the emotional crisis. And that's a much more complicated challenge. There's never been such a great gap between the substance and the form, between the content and the rhetoric, between a great fracture separating the light and the vessel. It's vital to talk about emotions before talking about content. The judicial reform is an event happening in two parallel planes. The first is constitutional. The second, identitarian. You know, the Israelis have these weird words. It's just an identity conflict. Okay? <laughs> the first deals with questions of constitutional law, separation of powers, appointment of judges, cancelling laws, override reasonableness, the powers of the attorney general. The second deals with character and identity, with the divide who want to have Israel more Jewish and those who want it to be more democratic. To mobilize legitimacy for the first constitutional arena, the right couldn't resist the temptation to set fire to the second. But the right didn't expect the flames to rise so high and the left so fearful of the second. And the left is in a bitter attempt to prevent the first. 
The left is terrified of losing its world in an instant and is burning bridges uh, to even talk about the first. And any second now, there'll be violence in the streets. If the right had done its job properly, it would have invested much more time through creating an orderly public and transparent process that would clarify its intentions to create a reform that preserves the separation of powers and balances governance with individual rights. And if the right had, wiped, right had worked wisely, it would have not expanded the war front and charged in parallel on a whole series of insane bills that some are threatening and some are just opportunistic that have no connection to the values of a responsible right. So what's the left done? So, and we shouldn't really say the left. What has the opposition done? I don't think we can really describe a Victor Lieberman, you know, Gidon Saar uh, as the left. Um, but what has the, what has the opposition done? I think this is really interesting. The first is to remember, and I think this is important, in the previous change government, okay, when Bennett and Lapid were in charge, Netanyahu and the opposition spent their entire time delegitimating that government, saying they are not a real government, they stole votes because they felt that Bennett crossing the line stole votes and protested mercilessly uh, outside MK's houses, uh, tried to inspire real challenges between Israel's Arab and Jewish uh, relations, saying that Israel keeps giving money to the Islamic Brotherhood and other parts, to try and delegitimize and create an unstable environment that would create the government to collapse. The opposition said, well, if Bibi can do that, we're going to do it. And what, where, whereas Bibi's base in many of the ways was sort of those sort of grassroots, the base of the opposition of the secular Ashkenazim is the grass tops, is the elite. And so they use their elite tools. And so there have really been the protest has taken place on three different planes. The first is the economy. The high-tech community early on saw this as a problem and started to say, you're going to kill startup nations. Now, for those of you who are fluent in macroeconomics, you'll know that globally there's been an issue about investment in tech anyway, globally. We've seen layoffs here in the States. But from a process of inertia and Zionism and just a very good ecosystem, Israel's done pretty well so far. But this, what's gone on now, has really shaken the foundations. And in many ways, the damage has already been done. So the high-tech community is terrified that should the, the judicial system be reformed in this way, that rights wouldn't be guaranteed, both in terms of personal rights, so the human capital, which is often quite liberal, that makes up high-tech, is very movable. Also, could there be discrimination in the workplace against uh, Arabs or national minorities, and how would that look to investors? Uh, they're also worried about the potential for corruption to enter into the judicial system, especially given so much authority centralized, what that would mean for IP, what that would mean for flows of capital. So already we've seen funds completely move out of Israel. Uh, we've seen most Israeli uh, new high-tech firms incorporate in Delaware. So that means that Israel won't get the tax benefits from an exit. Um, and already we've seen major Israeli high-tech groups taking their latest rounds of financing and moving them out of Israeli banks and potentially moving their staff abroad. And they Is that a protest or is that just prudence and being so careful? So it's a bit of A and a bit of B from stuff. Um, some of it's prudence. What happens if it passes and then the economy crashes and then the government creates um, uh, currency laws that stop you moving currency out the country? And people say, well, they won't do that. Well, how do you know? Because who's going to stop them? Because there's no judicial system that would have the ability to stop them. You know, you saw the governor of the Bank of Israel go on CNN. The whole point about governors of the Bank of Israel or any central bank is they're terribly boring. And he gave a very interesting interview, which you already know is dangerous, where he said, look, you know, we've got to make sure we maintain the independence of the central bank. And 
BB had said it and Smotch had said they will, but he felt scared enough that he had to go on television, international television, and warn about that and warn about the economic consequences. All the major banks in Israel have warned the finance minister, all the major trade associations have said, you're going to crash the economy if you do this judicial reform. You know, Prime Minister Netanyahu sent Ron Dermer to speak to The Economist and to finance ministers and Martin Wolf. And in general, when you send a political person to speak to economists, it doesn't really go well. And it didn't go well. And you see these articles, you know, The Economist last week, will BB shred startup nation? You know, the, uh, the FT, Martin Wolf writes a barnstorming article saying, don't reach out to be like this. I don't think you're right. You know, why would you kill the golden goose? What's gone, so, you know, if it's gone so well, what's the problem? And so the economic sector is really rebelling and, you know, it led to even, and we can talk about what happened over the past few days in a second, it led to the trade union movement and the employers coming together to shut down the whole economy. That gives you an example of how wall-to-wall this is. By the way, the head of the, just as an aside, the head of the airport authority that shut down Ben-Gurion is a Likud Central Committee member, right? So, like, it's yeah. very widespread. Okay, so that that's on one side. I- okay, so we spoke about uh, the economic um, uh, protests or the economic uh, impact of, of this these uh, proposed reforms. Why is the military so heavily invested? Um, I think, you know, Rabbi, one of the things that when we looked at the elites of, you know, what the protest movement, the opposition has managed to do, they occupy, of course, a lot of high parts of the uh, of the economy. And as I said, we saw how the histadut and the management, you know, so both employers and unions came together to shut down the economy on Sunday. But the other place where much of secular Ashkenazi Israel sits is in the elite units. And of course, most people know that Israel has a conscriptual army. But what a lot of people don't know is that the strength of the army, especially of the Air Force, which is the backbone of Israeli deterrence, as well as key critical intelligence units and commando units, is in the reserves. It's people who have had this experience that they give a day a week of their lives to make sure that they fly the best planes, they have the, the knowledge and the experience and the age in order to do their work. And these folks... For the first time, truly, Israel has now seen a mass refusenik movement where people have written letters, uh, 30 out of uh, 39 pilots. Uh, you've seen uh, attendance rates and reserve days drop from 96 to 50 percent and other things, writing letters saying we're not going to serve in a dictatorship. And what was motivating them is really two things. And it's not so much just, you know, their general opposition to the judicial reform, but how it affects them doing their jobs. And it really falls in two categories. And the first is this. When you're a pilot and you're about to drop a bomb uh, or anything else like that, um, you need to know that the advocate general, the military uh, lawyers and others, and the government is following law as set up as Supreme Court before you attack the target, because you need to be protected by the system of laws that sit behind you. And if the government no longer has to listen to the judicial system and populist elements can override and other things, then you don't know if... A, that legal analysis has been taken into account. And that can mean that if there is no legal analysis and if it is outside the bounds of the law, and for example, as the government has insisted, it wants to pass an immunity from prosecution of all Israeli soldiers, means that you could find yourself in front of the Hague or the ICC or anything else because Israel's army wouldn't be following the same regulations as all other armies you know, of the Western world where there's a legal analysis that sits behind. So that's a little bit counterintuitive. So it's worth unpacking that that you know this proposed law that would grant immunity to soldiers 
actually puts those soldiers at greater risk. Like you have an Air Force pilot who also flies planes for El Al and he flies into Rome and Paris and London uh, two times a week when he isn't flying planes in the, in the Israeli Air Force. So if the Israeli government won't investigate um, potential war crimes or, or, or crimes committed by soldiers, then that gives a free reign to international... Universal jurisdiction. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a problem... And um, and by the way, at the uh, at the protest for the for the pro reform movement, Itamar Ben Gvir said we want to pass immunity for soldiers, and the Supreme Court says no. And so he's saying, look, the only thing that's stopping us from passing full immunity from prosecution is them. But full immunity, as the security and the legal establishment has told the Knesset and has told the government, is not a good thing. One, it stops commanders being able to order their soldiers in the field and exacerbates the tensions between often those who come from the lower socioeconomic classes and others, the Elo Azars and others who, you know, you have to maintain discipline of force in the army. You can't just have an army that does whatever it wants. You know, if we're going to, if the IDF is going to be the most moral army, it needs to actually follow moral codes. And that means they have to listen to their methakeds, their their the commanders. Ah, and it's also a counterintuitive argument, right? That that if a if a soldier knows that he can shoot whoever he wants and do whatever he wants, and there'll be no legal recriminations, why would he listen to his commanding officer? Why would he yeah. listen to your commanding officer, especially yeah. for conscriptual so, uh, army, when you've got ministers saying, "Do whatever you need, be disproportionate, show that the master of the house has gone mad." Well, if you do that and you don't listen to your commanding officers, and you know that there's not going to be prosecution, there's no discipline. Right. So that's one side of what's going on. And the other, and this really comes after the events of what happened over the past six weeks in uh, in Habracha, Yazaka and Hawara. So as we know, uh, around six weeks ago, there was a terrible terrorist incident where two people were killed in the settlement uh, who came from the settlement of, I think, Yazaka or Habracha. And then in response, and this is the IDF's words, there was a pogrom where people from those those communities came and burnt down the village of Hawara. Um, there were 35 homes completely demolished, 155 properties hurt. Um, and after that happened, uh, Bitsal Smotrich, who is not just the finance minister, but is a minister inside the defense establishment, called for Hawara to be wiped out. And so now these soldiers, and it's not just the, the, the pilots who could be instructed to bomb a village, but also the infantrymen and everything else are saying, how do I know that the orders that are coming are ones that are in the national security interest? Or are they just in partisan majoritarian interests and the people who are ordering us? And that government is made up of ultra-Orthodox Jews who don't serve in the army, religious Zionist leaders who either for security reasons were not allowed to serve in the army, or they had not sort of a length of service and they have very ideological views about what should happen in the settlements. And if that's the case, how do I know that what's gone on is about national security or not? And so people are very uncomfortable. And this refusedic movement has spread wide. And it actually was what motivated the defense minister, Gallant, on Thursday last week to go to Prime Minister Netanyahu and say, look, the assessment of the IDF chief of staff, of myself, of the head of the Shin Bet, which is the security services, have all said that the the judicial reform is a threat to national security because we're not going to have the capacity to do what we need if this is what's going on. Now, it's also important to mention that the reports from the Mossad and the Shin Bet, they've allowed their people to go and protest. And unlike the army, they're not conscripts. These are professionals. And they've also warned the prime minister that the Mossad and the Shin Bet will collapse if, there isn't, if, there's, uh, if the judiciary is completely neutered 
because they rely on the judiciary to tell them what's legal and isn't. And again, if you have populist sentiments coming from the Knesset with no check and balance on what's legal and what's not legal, they don't feel the confidence in order to do what they need to do in order to secure Israel or anything else. Um, so Gallant goes on Thursday night and Bibi calms him down. And then Bibi on Thursday night says the judicial reform will continue moving forward. But don't worry, I'm now involved because they passed a law called the fortification law that he claims means that the attorney general can't throw him out of office, even if he breaks his conflict of interest policy. Because one thing I don't know if we've mentioned, the prime minister is under three criminal indictments. Uh, and that some people say is what is also motivating him to move forward on the judicial reform. And to be prime minister, he signed a conflict of interest policy saying he will not get involved on anything with the judicial system. Seeing the country desperately needing some compromise, the Knesset passed a law to say the attorney general can't remove the prime minister for breaking his conflict of interest policy. And so he broke his conflict of interest policy. Um, whether that's legal or not, it's still being debated by the Supreme Court. Uh, but in the meantime, the prime minister, ironically, is not now in the negotiations to solve the, the judicial crisis because he's conflicted out and he sent a team. But that's a non sequitur. That's still to be decided. So anyway, Gallant makes his point. Bibi ignores him. And then uh, on Friday, I think, or it was on Shabbat itself, Gallant comes out and says, I can't vote for the reform. He says the security situation is just too bad and it's insane. And that it was on Motzei Shabbat. And the prime minister flies back on Sunday and everyone's wondering what's going to happen. And on Sunday, he fires Gallant. And this was very disturbing for a lot of people because Gallant was just expressing the view of the security establishment, which is his legal mandate. He needs to represent that and explain it. But people said he didn't coordinate with the prime minister and the prime minister accused him of not being strong enough on these refuseniks and that he's not pushing back hard enough. So what happens? So on Sunday, he fires him. At 11.30 at night, on a Sunday night, spontaneously, 600,000 Israelis from the north at Kiryat Shmona all the way to Alat come out and protest. And people who hadn't even protested before, as people said, you know, my friends who only go to the beach and go to Zara sales, come out and sing, you know, Bibi, you've, you've screwed with the wrong generation. And, and it, it's shocking how many people come out. And then the Histadrut says, tomorrow we're going on general strike. And then the employers say, great, we're going to be on turn. And then Ben-Gurion shuts down. And then the airport shut down. And then the universities go on strike. And then the high schools go on strike. And across Israel, everything stops. So on Monday, everyone's saying to Bibi, look, what are you going to do? The whole country shut down. And so slowly but surely, you see different ministers say, listen, we'll support whatever the prime minister wants, including the justice minister. But still, it, it, Bibi, the hours are going and Bibi hasn't made a statement. And at around six o'clock, Itamar Ben-Gvir, the national security minister, issues a letter saying, I've agreed with the prime minister that the judicial reform can be suspended until the summer session. But in return, I get to have a, a national guard, something that was passed under Bennett, but they will report directly to me and that will be included in the budget. And then two hours later, Bibi gives a speech saying, uh, but he, before he gives the speech, they encouraged all of their supporters, the pro-reform people to come to the streets. Uh, and around 20 to 30,000 people came to Jerusalem. When you ask people who turned up, it was mainly the religious Zionist community. The ultra-Orthodox didn't come and the Likud didn't come. Um, but also outside of just the sort of standard religious Zionist supporters, the La Familia Hooligan group from Beta Yerushalayim and um, Lahaba, which is a missegregationist group that police Arab and Jewish interactions turn up. 
And the, despite there being not a lot of violence, there was violence. There's a Channel 13 reporter who had his ribs broken by La, by La Familia and his spleen attacked. They chased Arabs, uh, Arab car drivers and went through the streets looking for people. And it's ironic because for 12 weeks, 19% of Israel had been protesting and there hadn't been any incidents of violence. And the first time that there's a counter-protest, there was significant potential violence. And so that also injected that in. So Bibi sees this and says, look, here are my protesters who came, by the way, with no funding, despite the fact that the regional councils paid for their buses. There were huge banners with organizational logos on them, but sure. And he says, these are real patriots and they're not anarchists, implying that everyone who had been protesting before were anarchists. He says, we'll suspend and we'll go to, to dialogue. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm the moral one. I don't want to split the baby. I'm like King Solomon and we'll suspend and we'll see. And so now what's going on now is that everyone's gone to the president's house to have, uh, to see if they can hammer something out over the next 30 days. And, you know, the thing that I didn't mention is you've had these protest movements and the golden rule in social protests is if you get 3.5% of a population constantly protesting, you can generally stop a government from working on a particular issue. And by some estimates, 19% of Israel has been protesting against um, these issues. And uh, and the protests spread wide and far, included very unusual people. You know, the guy who shut down the Ben-Gurion airport is actually a member of the Likud Central Committee. So it was really a broad sense. And so now everyone's in the president's house and trying to figure out if they can get something going. Each side is intensely suspicious of the other. Uh, already press reports have been that Levin said, look, we're just calming them down. We're going to build up our own protest movement over the next six weeks. Uh, and then we're going to basically pass it as is. Uh, ben Gvir's functionally said the same thing. And so there's a lot of skepticism. But the protest movement has said, we're ready to, the army, the economy, we're all ready to shut it down again if nothing happens, if there's no compromise. So what is that? So that means there's like the, this Motsay Shabbat, there won't be protests, so they're going to pause for it? Won't be, it won't be as big. There's still some people protesting, but I can't imagine it'll be as big. I think my, the army refuseniks have said, we'll go back and serve, we'll give it a chance. The Histadrut called it off. So there could still be some protests. It could even be, you know, 50, 60,000 people, but you're not going to, I don't imagine you're going to see the massive amounts. But they're not they're they're ready and able to come straight back out if they need to. There's a lot of skepticism. But the one big winner politically of this has been Gantz, who has really been seen as the guy trying to create a compromise. And on the snap polling uh, on Monday night, he went from nine to twenty three seats, okay. like in polling, which is an insane amount. And it's very clear that a lot of the Likud and some of Yesha Tid has really just said, "You're the only person who seems to be able to hold this together." And he's actually started a WhatsApp channel for everyone to tell everyone what's going on in the negotiations. So to try and say, like, I am your arbiter. So that that's really what's going on and has got on. And as we've said, like, this is less about judicial reform, but more who's in charge of Israel. And if you look at the protest signs for the pro-reform movement from the, for the government, the signs that were amazingly all simultaneously printed with no prior organization all said, we are not second-class citizens, saying our vote shouldn't be any less than a pilot's, and we want this. And the country's really divided completely down the middle on this. But again, it's very important to remember, each side has a different reason that they want this. The ultra-Orthodox, what they want is very different from the religious Zionists, which is different again from, well, not that different, but a little bit different from what Levin wants. And so I think what Bo the president has already tried to do is say, can I give the Haredim what they want without doing the rest of it? 
and to see if they can sort of rearrange the deck chairs. And we'll see over the next few weeks if that's possible. I think it's an important point to emphasize that the, it's not the you know this reasonable people can debate the 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 role of the judiciary in a democracy, and that debate is happening in America, and that debate has happened and should happen in Israel. But the part that I think makes me nervous is why these particular people want to push judicial reform now, you know, in order to accomplish various uh, things that they feel the court would, would uh, as presently constituted, stop them from doing. And that, that's what gives me the most pause. And, and it's not just who's a judge. If it was just about judicial selection, I think there would still be a lot of consternation. But that's not the same as including an override clause, including lessening the power of the attorney general, all these other things, basic laws that basically enable a 61 majority in the Knesset to do anything, mm-hmm. literally anything. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a word about the American uh, response uh, as it's developed over the course of the week. Anything, uh, does the United States have a role to play our government? And then maybe also something about the American Jewish community and particularly um, the American Orthodox community, maybe even our shul. What, like, what role do we have as, as like this historic you know, events are happening in Israel? So we'll start with our, our government. I, I think this is important. We're recording this on Wednesday and yesterday, the president of the United States very unusually, basically decided on the tarmac and Riley to tell Bibi to stop the reforms and that he's not coming to the White House. He then, when he landed back in Washington, said, this is my view and the view of the American Jewish community. So how do we get to a point where this administration did not, under any circumstances, from both the start of the Netanyahu government and the start of the administration, want to get into it with Israel, to now that the president himself is basically impromptu, just very much getting himself involved. And and I think that what's important to understand is the president, that when the Netanyahu government was sworn in 12 weeks ago, the policy was, and it was very clearly expressed, Bibi said, I'm in charge. I have my hands on the wheel. Whether it's on settlement policy, whether it's about the Saudis, whether it's about the Iranians, I'm in charge. Galant's my guy, Sakhi Anegbi, the national security guy, advisor's my guy. Ron Derma, who's the strategic affairs minister, who's my personal envoy functionally, is my guy. We're in charge. We're the grown-ups. And so you could ignore everyone else. We're going to sort it out. And over the past 12 weeks, that's been chipped away at. We've seen um, issues uh, where what happened in Hawara and then Smotrich's comments, the Aqaba uh, security summit where the Israelis agree to things and then the national security minister Ben Gvir and Betzal Smotrich say we're not implementing them and then things don't move forward. Um, lots of sort of small things that have really been chipping away. And the administration has been desperately to not get involved in judicial reform. They didn't want to be involved. They, the only statement that the president made to Tom Freeman early on was like, look, I think this should be done through consensus. I think it's very important things should be done through consensus. That's it. Very easy, very short. Um, so where, how do you get from there to here? And I think that there were three motivating factors that pushed them into the center of this problem. The first is the Refusenik movement challenges Israel's capacity to be a U.S. ally if they want, if they want the Israelis to provide the credible threat against the Iranians to stop them. It has to be credible. And if you've got half of the Israeli Air Force protesting, saying they're not going to fly planes, that's not credible anymore. So that's one. Two, the firing of Gallant was a massive shot across the bow. Gallant had been a huge interlocutor with the US, especially the Pentagon. And for example, his uh, director general, who's a major general in the army, was in Washington for talks about the Iranian nuclear issue when he was fired. And he had to instantaneously fly back. That's just crazy and chaos. 
And the third, which I really think is important not to overlook, the prime minister, when he was in Rome, um, there was a statement that came from a senior official in the prime minister's office, which everyone and their mother knows means Prime Minister Netanyahu himself, speaking off the record, that claimed that the US government and foreign governments, but the CIA and the State Department, were behind the protests. Now, in general, the president of the United States does not read the Israeli press very closely, but the one person we know he does read is Thomas Friedman. And it is no surprise for me that on Monday, Thomas Friedman, or yesterday, sorry, on Tuesday, Thomas Friedman wrote a column saying Bibi cannot be trusted and dedicated around 400 words to the fact that Bibi and his son had accused the United States of undermining its democracy by funding these protests. And if I had to bet all of my money in my pockets, the president of the United States read that and lost his mind. Here is he has desperately tried not to get involved. He has sent pr- private messages through Ambassador Knights. He has tried everything to keep this calm and off. And now he reads that the prime minister is blaming his administration for the protests themselves. And I, I think that he just he just lost it. It's not good because as much as, yes, this isn't a, a historic crisis or whatever else, Joe Biden, someone who joyfully talks about his relationship with Golda Meir, has known Netanyahu for 40 years is the most pro-Israel, I would argue, president ever. Like in terms of in his cockles, in everything else. Like everything about him, who was, you know, someone trying to calm down during the Obama administration, trying to like hug. If he's got this frustrated, you've got to ask yourself what's gone wrong. He didn't want to talk about the Palestinian issue. He didn't want to talk about judicial reform. Their entire aspiration is to keep things calm during Ramadan. That's it. From top to bottom. That is what they want. They want to calm things down. I think that they're very much in wait and see mode. And I think that they're worried that in return for suspending judicial reform, will Bibi give something to the far right during Ramadan that could exacerbate the tensions? And they are very worried about that. And I think this is also an indication. I think that this crisis will pass if Ramadan goes okay. And if it doesn't, I think this will exacerbate extremely quickly. And so that's been the US response. In terms of the American Jewish response, I would basically say wall to wall, with the exception of maybe the ZOA, I'll get to the Orthodox community because I think it's a different particular thing, has basically called for a mixture of please compromise, please listen, please don't upset the the balances. Ron Campius had a great piece about five of our legacy organizations, AJC, JFNA, Conference of Presidents, APAC, all fighting about how they should comment on this. But in general, everyone's been like, please, please, please stop screaming at each other in Israel. We really want to try and make sure that you're strong and you can do stuff with the Abraham Accords. You can't do that if you're all arguing with each other. Uh, And I think that's what motivated the president to say that's also the view of the American Jewish community. We've also seen statements, bipartisan statements from Lindsey Graham, from Mitt Romney, um, as well as from like Todd Young on the Republican side. And then basically every Democrat, including Steny Hoyer, sort of the main APAC leader, uh, who was the former majority leader in the House all basically saying, please stop this and go to compromise and work with the president. Um, the Israelis' response to President Biden, you know, the pro- the prime minister issued the response at 1 a.m. I don't know if you should ever be issuing diplomatic responses at 1 a.m., but it was, it was pretty tame. He said, you know, we're going to do our own thing, even from pressure from our best friends. I think that was a completely reasonable response. I don't think that was bad. The Biden administration, however, responded back in, in time with their own anonymous quote saying, just don't smear us. And then today there were a lot of backbenchers, but not just backbenchers, also like Michael Oren, the former ambassador to, to the US, also making very harsh, in my view, incredibly unhelpful statements. I mean, 
President Biden is not President Obama. Israelis understand that. I don't think you can claim that the guy who cried when President Herzog gave him the Medal of Honor. Um, I, I just don't think you can claim that he's anti-Israel. Uh, I just think it's an insanity. So we'll see. I think that the prime minister's office is desperate for everyone to stop speaking and just to allow him to manage this particular thing. You know, there was one Likud backbencher who honestly said one of the most offensive things. He claimed that President Obama's apparently restricted Hellfire missiles from Israel in 2014. One, I don't know if that's true, but then claimed that that actually killed Israeli soldiers. And claimed, and when pushed, he said President Obama is responsible for the death of Israeli soldiers. I mean, how is that person not disciplined is pretty insane. But I think that what the White House worries about is not random backbenchers. I think what they worry about a lot is what is the prime minister briefing. And, you know, there's no other responsible adult in the government for the relationship. There's no like flak jacket. There's no Gantz. There's no Lapid. So you can't play the game that you claim that the U.S. is trying to overthrow you and also be the responsible actor in the relationship. So you've got to pick. So that's that's been that part of it. In terms of the the role of the Orthodox Jewish community and others, I think it's pretty unique um, and it's difficult. I, I think that many in the Orthodox community, well, you know, and Anshay Shalom's on the liberal side, but they're still a part of the OU and the RCA, would like to believe that all of our religious Zionist compatriots are like Rav Benny Lau or like other like rabbis that we read and they're part of the liberal, you know, religious Zionist movement or Maimad or other things and it makes us feel okay. It's just not true. If we look at the yeshivot and the seminaries we send our children to, and you poll who they're, who the rebbeim there vote for, they vote for Smotrich. And he ran with Ben Gvir. I mean, like, Efrat was 50% voting in that way, right? And you can go through all the different places and people. And so we actually don't have the luxury, in my view, and this might be controversial, to boycott or to ignore the voices of people who claim the mantle of religious Zionism. Uh, I think you have to engage with them. Now, does that, you know, again... We didn't legitimate them. Bitsal Smotrich is the finance minister and is the minister in the defense department. Itmar Ben-Gvir is the national security minister. He just is. And if we don't meet them and explain to them the views of our community and where we disagree, they will meet people who agree with them and assume that's the only voice. And again, we don't also have that luxury because if we don't, our kids are still going to the same yeshiva and seminary and they will come away with very inspirational people who have taught them who are voting in a very particular direction. And we can't just close our eyes and ears from this. You know, I, I remember famously before this election, one of the leaders of World Mizrahi, Rabbi Targun, who I learned under in Hakotel, you know, wrote a big political piece saying we're going to vote for Smotrich. And there was huge consternation amongst the Bogrim of other people saying, how could you? He's homophobic, whatever. And he took it down eventually. But I'm sure he didn't even think it would be controversial to put it out. He wasn't trying to be controversial. He just assumed. And that gap of assumption has grown wider and wider. And unlike the, the other denominational streams in our community who can functionally just say this whole government disrespects us and doesn't like us, the modern Orthodox community our interlocutors, much of the time, are parts of the right of this government. I mean, if you look at our sister movements, I think that that, in, that means that we have an obligation in the appropriate way. I wouldn't be inviting them to our shuls or our schools. I think that there's a difference between exposing you know, our communal leadership, who I don't think will be influenced by just speakers, but can have a rational and informed conversation versus our children or our congregants who are out there to learn. I think there's, of course, an appropriate place. 
But I'm of the belief that if the conversation's happening anyway, and we can either be part of that conversation or others. And the last thing I'll say is, Bitsal Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir are not aberrations. This is the future of Israel. Not them individually, but people from that worldview are demographically ascendant, along with the ultra-Orthodox. And that's just a fact. And so how we as a modern Orthodox community and, as, and one like Anshay Shalom that's also, you know, comes in a liberal bent, engage with that or don't engage with that is a really important conversation, but it is not black and white. And, and the last thing I'll say on this concept of legitimacy, of course, where we choose to engage or not is important, but in the Israeli system, they are legitimate. They are. And... If we're going to be Zionist, and if we're going to talk about Reshet Smicha Gluatenu and understand what that means in a political context in Israel, we have to be honest about who it is as in our communities. And, you know, I'll quote another congregant of ours, Dr. Sarah Hershon, whose research was about um, the Zionist community, the Aliyah community from America. 60,000 of the settler community are Americans. They're American or limp. Okay, not in East Jerusalem, in the West Bank and, and uh, in the West Bank and Yehuda Shimon. And when you look at it, it's it's something like a third is coming from America. So once you understand that, we're part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Wow. So one last uh, question, uh, just looking towards the future. Um, Palestinian question has been kept out of these protests, uh, either strategically or strategic wisdom or strategic folly. Um is there any uh, so uh, any comments on that question? And then, sort of, I guess, what 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 comes from this? You know, best case scenario, if these reforms are are put aside, if the Netanyahu government fails, or you know, or then its more extreme elements are left out of the next government, are we just biding our time until until the next round? Right? If these um, uh, more right wing, uh, anti democratic, illiberal forces, let's say, are ascendant demographically, then well, just a matter of time until they uh, take control of the Zionist project in the state of Israel. So I, I'd say two things. One, um, at early on in the protest, I think week two, there was a very active decision made to flood the square with Israeli flags. They didn't want to be labeled as leftists. They said, look, even though there is a core in the protest who really omdim biyachad standing together, who really are putting up messages until we're all free, none of us are free, who are flying uh, the Palestinian flag and other things. In general, it's been flooded with that. And so it gives the impression that the Palestinians haven't been at the forefront. I will say that what happened in Hawara did challenge that. You saw protest signs the next week and the next two, three, to say, you know, what happened in Hawara could happen here. There were a lot of analysis to say how come there were more protesters uh, in, uh, arrested in Tel Aviv than people who committed a pogrom in Hawara. It was something that was very apt. And I think that, again, with the soldier protests and given what's happened in Hawara and the fact that so many reservists have to be there, there is this thing saying, what are we doing here? Like, are we really going to allow the the nation and the country to be dictated by people who hold a very different view of what should happen to the Palestinians uh, and to places like Hawara than we do? And what does that mean for our conscripts and other parts? And so, I, again, I don't think that the future of what happens post this moment means necessity that this will bring refocus into what's happening in the West Bank and in Gaza and in East Jerusalem. But also, I don't automatically assume it won't. I think that what we know for sure is that what's happened over the past 12 weeks is a watershed moment in Israel. And the the secular Ashkenazi community has recognized itself as non-negotiables. And where do they extend to? 
Because now that you know you have non-negotiables, what's the length and what's the depth of how far they extend? And does that include a, a want of divorce from the Palestinians? Does that, um, you know, whether it's two, a classical two-state solution or confederacy or whatever else, but can we truly ignore it if they're going to schlep us into it? It hasn't been at the forefront of the judicial protests, but I also push back a little bit. I understand those in the pro-Palestinian camp who, you know, who want to poo-poo the protest saying, well, if it's not about the Palestinians, it's still going to be a non-complete democracy or, you know, they'll use other words, apartheid, whatever. Like, okay, I, I understand that. But like, look, this is a debate about what is the future of the state of Israel inside. And it, it, it's never worked out what its relationship with the Palestinians. And I don't think that it was ever going to front load that. And I think that because it's not front loaded, it doesn't mean that in that it's, it's fundamentally... Uh, not an interesting story or not something that should either inspire or worry you depending on where you sit on the political spectrum. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say that it, it forecloses it, nor would I say that it's definitely foreshadowing it. It's it's something that I, I, am, I am sure will be part of the ongoing conversation as this moves forward, um, especially because of what's going on in the IDF. I really do think that the, there's people who, once you start that conversation, and this is the thing that the prime minister has been very worried about, and rightfully so, once you begin the conversation of what's the limit of what I'm willing to do when I'm in reserves, you don't have an army anymore because not everyone can be a commander unto themselves. And the argument, by the way, is true of the immunity bill as well. Once you have immunity, you don't have an army anymore, right? So like, once we understand both of those aspects, I think that what's the happy medium there? And I think that's what they're struggling to get to. All right.